Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. My name's Dave. I serve here as our campus pastor, and it's great to be with you as we continue our series, Rediscovering Jesus. And whether you're someone who would say they've discovered Jesus or maybe are searching to discover or find something, we are so glad that you're here today. Well, when it comes to finding things, doesn't it seem ironic that often the thing that we're looking for the most in life is often in the place that we would want to find it the least now, my, the fav- my wife's least favorite question I ever ask her is this. Hey, honey, have you seen? As in, have you seen my car? Not, I, mean, I hope not my car, but my car keys, my phone, my wallet. How many of you have somebody in your life who asks that question to you? Have you seen? Now, how many of you are the person who asks that question, have you seen? Yeah, you're like me. Well, often I don't want to hear her reply because probably she's going to tell me that it's in our front closet of our condo. Now, the front closet is long, it's narrow, it's hard to get in, and it's really well organized with all these bins. And to take one thing out, you have to typically take two or three bins out, take the item out from the bin, and then put the bin back exactly where it was supposed to go. And for whatever reason, that's actually a lot harder than you think, at least for me. But if I was willing to make a bet I bet the thing that you're looking for most in life is probably in the place where you'd least want to find it, where you'd least want to find it. It's right there, but going there might just be too uncomfortable, maybe too painful, maybe too just difficult to enter in. Now, if I could wage another guess today, whatever that thing is that you're looking for, whether it be life or peace or happiness, that I bet we could find whatever it is we're looking for all in the same place. And I think that place, it might be difficult to go to, but that place is what I'm calling the tension gap. It's the gap represented as the space between these two ladders, this ladder symbolizing the vision of what we hope for for our life, and this ladder representing its actual fulfillment. We find ourselves in the tension gap when the vision that we want to see happen into our our lives doesn't seem to come to fruition when we want it. I need to pause real quick quickly here, because I see I'm getting a lot of stares from this illustration. Yikes, keep moving. All right. Um, but this is, this is when we have a dream that we think maybe has been given to us by God, or it's what we thought all along, and it doesn't happen. It's the difference, this tension gap is the difference between what we want and what we actually experience to be true in our lives, between what we thought and what is. And each and every one of us have this tension gap in our lives. One of the first tension gaps I can ever remember in my life occurred when I was just in high school and I stopped growing. It reminded me when I was in fifth grade, I went to the doctor's appointment. He told me, you're probably going to be like six foot three when you're finished growing. I thought, that's crazy. My dad's only five nine, my mom's five six. How in the world is this, you know, genetically possible? But I love thinking I'm going to be six foot three because the thing I love to do the most in my life and what I was best at was playing basketball. And you get a real height advantage from being six three and not sadly where I stopped at five eleven. Actually, I'm five ten and three quarters, but five eleven <laughs> sounds so much better. And even some days when my hair hits six three, my wife tells me you're still five ten and three quarters. That's a tension gap. And we all have these tension gaps within our lives. Maybe for you, it's kind of like me. I thought I was going to be this tall. I thought I was going to look some way and turn out this way. And my life ended up a rung lower than what I would have thought. Maybe it could have been with a job. You thought after college, after school, that this is what your career was going to look like. And it's 
landed here. Maybe it's with a relationship that you thought this relationship was going to look one way. It was going to be this great vision. It was going to be everything that you wanted. It was going to be fulfilled like this, and it's stuck here in the tension gap. Maybe it's with a health diagnosis. You thought you're going to be healthy, and this is what the way life was going to be, and it's turned out radically different. We all have these tension gaps. Take a moment right now, says the think. What might be the tension gap in your life? What's your attention gap? See, these things are painful, and we often don't want to find ourselves there because it's tough to go through. It's tough to deal with these things. And so we typically do one of two things to try and make sense of these tension gaps in our lives. The first thing we do is we typically try to avoid them. We just want to pretend they're not there. Oh, I'm fine, even though I'm really not fine. Everything's okay, even though it really isn't. A lot of us try and distract ourselves when some of the silent screams of pain that these tension gaps in our lives have created, we try and squelch them, maybe by overeating, hoping that the food will help the feelings go away, maybe overdrinking just to try and completely displace ourselves and uh, leave the reality that we are currently in. For some of us, it's binge-watching Netflix. It's not, I don't think Netflix is just as addictive because the shows are that good as much as it's so freeing. It enables us to forget about the tension gaps in our lives. And then some of us literally try and get away from these tension gaps by moving. I think the reason our culture is as transient as it is these days is because we want to run away from those tension gaps we don't want to face. And we hope and we think that they're not going to find us or catch up to us. But we know all these avoidance strategies ultimately never deliver what they promise. We still have these tension gaps in our lives. So that's the first way that we can kind of deal with this tension gap, this disappointment or this difference between what we thought was going to be and what is. The second way is that we often obsess over these tension gaps in our lives. We just get totally consumed by them. If those who avoid tension gaps make them nothing, those who obsess over them make them everything. We think these tension gaps are all that there is, and we focus so much on what's missing in our lives that we actually forget about what we do have, and we lose gratitude. We become bitter. A lot of us end up just obsessing over these things that we feel very entitled. Why does that person have that and I don't? I deserve better than what I have. And this bitterness starts to rise up and we become like this toxic personality that a lot of people just want to keep their distance from because they're a little scared about what might emerge. A lot of us are probably thinking of somebody like that. And if you're not thinking of somebody like that right now, somebody's probably thinking of you. <laughs> I'm only half kidding about that though. And so... A lot of times when we're obsessing about these tension gaps, what happens is we get impatient and frustrated that, they're, that they still exist, and so we want to take things into our own hands. And a lot of times that even involves us compromising our values so that we think we can get what we want when we want it. And if you've ever tried to take a situation like this into your own hands, we know that instead of the tension gap going away, it often only widens. So most of us try and deal with these tension gaps by avoiding them or by obsessing over them. And today I'd like to offer a third way, an alternative approach to how we can deal with the tension gaps in our lives. And that is to embrace them. That's to embrace the tension gap. When, when we embrace the tension gap, we don't make them nothing like those who avoid them do. And we don't make them everything like those who obsess over them do. We actually make them something. 
We acknowledge the heartache involved in these tension gaps. We, we acknowledge the pain that is associated with them. But also within these tension gaps, when we embrace them, we realize there's an invitation attached to them as well, an opportunity. Now, the reason I've called this gap a tension gap and not just any ordinary gap is because of what the word tension actually means. In its Latin root, the word tension means to stretch. It means to stretch. And so when we embrace these tension gaps in our lives, they can actually stretch us to help us become more and more mature. If you've ever gone to the gym, and probably all of you have, but if you've gone, and let's just say that you go, and you lift the same amount of weight every time that you go to the gym, do you think you're going to get any stronger? Probably not. You probably won't get any weaker, but you probably won't get any stronger, because in order for you to grow, in order for you to become stronger, you need added tension and resistance. Because things don't grow without tension, without resistance. That's why most growth in our life is unwanted growth, because that growth involves embracing tension. Now, if you still feel stuck in your, maybe your life right now, or maybe in your faith, I wonder if you might be avoiding some kind of tension gap that's in your life, or if you might be obsessing over it and not embracing it. But today, I want uh, us to embrace be invited all together to embrace the tension gaps that we actually experience in our lives. Because today I want us to capture this idea that the embrace of tension, it actually is the way of faith. Embracing tension is the way of faith. We don't just need faith like trust and obedience to God when times are tough, but actually living by faith can bring about these tension gaps in our lives, as we'll see. And I believe that the reason that God allows these tension gaps that can be painful and we all go through them, why he allows these to occur is because they can stretch us to become more and more like Christ and we can discover who God truly is and not who we want him to be. And when we discover who Jesus really is, we can be okay even though everything in our lives might not be fully okay. And that's the invitation that we have today. And so if you brought your Bibles, I invite you to turn with, to me, to, with me to Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to look at the life of a man named Abraham, who was known as the father of faith. And we'll see what the Lord leads him into in his faith journey. And as we read his journey, and I kind of tell the story, I invite you to find traces of the finisher of our faith, Jesus, all along the way. So Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, who's also going to be find out whose name will be changed to Abraham, the Lord said to him, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham, or Abram, went as the Lord told him. So we meet Abram here, or Abraham as we'll call him, as he's later called. And Abraham is given this great vision from God that he is going to be a great nation, is going to come from his lineage. But immediately we're met with this tension gap as Abraham receives this vision. The tension gap is that he and his wife are quite old. Abraham's 75 years old when we meet him, and his wife Sarah is 65 years old, and they're childless. How do you make a great nation out of a couple who has never had a single child of their own? 
That's the tension that's already raised right here in Abraham's story. And then Abraham decides to go. And for him to go and take his possessions and all the servants that he had was a pretty enormous ordeal. It would have been a logistic nightmare to try and move all these people where God was leading them to go. And we're told that God actually doesn't specify where Abraham is supposed to go. So he just says, move all these people to a place I'm going to show you and tell you. Now, I think a lot of us in our life of faith, we just wish God would spell everything out. Like, we'd be giving a map for our lives about what each next step is supposed to look like with a timeline of when the deliverables are going to be. Wouldn't that be nice? But we're not given that. And we see Abraham instantly, right out of the gate, is led into uncertainty. He's led into tension gaps. And so he decides to go. He takes everybody with him, and he travels hundreds of miles and finally arrives at the place called Canaan where God had led him. And he finds that this land that he thought was going to be given to him is actually occupied. What's up with that? And the Lord says, your descendants will inhabit this place. You thought you were done. You thought you kind of made this journey and you're all set over here. But no, you're going to keep moving. And so God leads Abraham and his whole caravan to go to another place in this hill country. And there Abraham discovers that a famine is taking place. He's got to be thinking, God, how can I trust you when you're leading me to a place, first it's occupied and now where there's no food? And so Abraham and his family then go to seek refuge in Egypt. This kind of prefigures what's going to happen in the book of Exodus next, where Abraham's descendants are going to be freed and rescued from Egypt through Moses. And it also prefigures Jesus when he and his parents fled from Herod when they were trying to kill the young boys during that day. They fled to to Egypt. So we see traces of the promise happening here. But as Abraham and his family get nearer and nearer to, to Egypt, he begins to get this idea that Pharaoh, when he sees his wife Sarah, who's so beautiful, he is going to want Sarah for himself. And so Pharaoh is going to kill me to take Sarah. So Abraham says, you know what? I'm going to lie about who my wife really is. I'm going to say she's just my sister. And technically, she was some kind of like half-sister relationship. That's kind of awkward. We're not going to deal with that right now. <laughs> But he goes to Pharaoh and says, no, she's not my sister. She's my, or she's not my wife. She's my sister. And so Pharaoh takes Sarah for himself. And what happens? Plagues start to come down on Egypt. And Pharaoh says, what is going on? And he realizes Abraham lied to him and that Sarah was actually his wife. So they are expelled from Egypt. Now let's just pause here in this part of the story. Abraham is supposed to be the father of our faith. And right out of the gate, we see that he is using deceit, he's he's lying, and he's also acting like a coward. He is putting his own skin before the well-being of his wife. He wants to save himself and not worry about Sarah, so he lies about her and lets her be placed in this incredibly vulnerable position. Now, a lot of us, if we're trying to discover Jesus, we often think that My life needs to be perfect. I need to be this good kind of person for me to be able to approach God. And here we see in this story, the person who's known as the father of the faith was very, very flawed. To be a Christian doesn't mean that you need to be perfect, but it does mean that you cannot remain content to be as imperfect as you currently are. God loves you way too much to leave you that way. So let's pick up in the story, and we'll fast forward about 10 years now. 
Abraham and, and Sarah are still childless, 85 and 75 years old. And Sarah kind of thinks, I ain't getting any younger here, so we need to do something about this. That's probably fair to say when you're 75. And so she's impatient with waiting for God's promise. And so she says to, to Abraham, why don't you take my servant Hagar and try and have a child with her? Maybe that will carry on this lineage. Now, if you've ever seen reality TV... If Abraham does this, you know it's about to get ugly. A whole tension bomb is about to be dropped. And so Abraham decides to go along with this, and he, and he takes Hagar, as the text says, as a wife. And she conceives and gives birth to a child named Ishmael. And when Sarah sees Hagar looking at her like she's had this child, Sarah is just filled with contempt. She's filled with anger. And so she goes to Abraham and says, this right here, this is your fault. <laughs> Abraham's like, it wasn't my idea. This is your fault. And so Abraham kind of passively says, do whatever you want with this woman. And so Sarah sends her out vulnerably into the, to the wilderness, kicks her out. Now we read in Genesis 16 that the Lord does take care of Hagar and supports her. But right at this point in the story, you almost think, is God really going to use this family to carry on his promises, to fulfill them? Let's just pause here for a moment. Because in this story, and in many other stories in Scripture, we see why God values sex to be exclusively held for the place of marriage. That's the only place it's supposed to occur. Because what happens when we start to seek things outside of that covenantal marriage relationship? Things get ugly. A lot of us, when we feel these tension gaps in our lives, and often that tension gap might be this aching, gnawing loneliness that we experience, we try to turn to a thing of this world to try and make those feelings go away. And oftentimes, we seek a relationship with someone who's not our spouse. We might seek pornography or things like this. But as this example shows us, that when we do something like that, not only will those people in our lives who we supposedly care about the most be, be devastated, we will end up having lives that are emptier than ever before. My friends, let me tell you, lust never delivers on its promises. It doesn't. So if you're flirting with that situation, flee from it. If you're involved in it right now, find help. Get out of it. It will never deliver on what it promises. So at this point in the story, we think, what is God going to do? He, he might just... Forget about Abraham and Sarah and their family for all the things they've done. But he doesn't. Instead, he actually wants to solidify this promise that he gave to Abraham by making a covenant with him. Now, a covenant is an agreement between God and between human beings that's initiated by the grace of God. And it's founded on God's promise and it's sealed with a sign. And so in Genesis 17, we see that God is making this covenant here with Abraham. And he says, I'm going to bless you. Please walk uh, really blamelessly before me. Walk in fear of me, and I will bless you. I will not only make a great nation out of you, but many nations. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. It's an amazing promise. And the way that this covenant will be sealed is with circumcision. This will show that this covenant is between me and you, and I will uphold my end of the deal. Walk faithfully and blamelessly before me. 
Now, this idea of the covenant is an amazing thing that God wants to solidify this with Abraham. And this is not the first covenant we've seen in the Bible. The first one's with Noah, and we'll later see ones with Moses and David. But the whole idea of God's covenant with us is actually a huge tension gap in the Old Testament. And here's why. Because the people that God has made these covenants with, they have never kept up their end of the deal. God said, I'm going to bless you. These are the promises I'm going to give you if you do these certain things. And the people that God makes these covenants with never, ever hold up their end of the agreement. And so does that mean, is God's promise not going to come? I don't know. But then the other side of it is, well, maybe God is going to give his promise and fulfill his end of the bargain no matter what. He's just going to turn a blind eye to people's sin and their rebellion. He's kind of like a pushover when it comes to people's wrongdoings. And so maybe God's just so loving that he doesn't care what we do creates a real tension here. Is God's covenant conditional? Is it based on what we do or is it unconditional? Well, let's just hold that tension in our minds and we'll see if there's a resolution that we'll find later on. So this is now 24 years into the process. This covenant is made with Abraham when he's 99. And the next year, finally, after 25 years, that long-awaited promise was finally, finally kept. And Sarah gives birth to their son named Isaac. And you finally think this story is resolved. This life that God had promised Abraham, it's finally coming to fruition. And everything seems to be going great with this family. They can finally take it easy and just go with the flow. But then the Lord decides to disrupt this yet again. And in Genesis 22, we come upon a passage that's maybe, for me, one of the biggest tension gaps of all of Scripture. Honestly, it's such a disturbing story. I wish it wasn't found in the Bible. But it is. And it's a tension that we have to wrestle with. And here's the tension. God tells Abraham to take your son, that son you waited 25 years for, the the son that you love, and sacrifice him to me as a burnt offering. What an unthinkable request. But Abraham obeys. And so the next morning he sets off with a couple of his servants and with Isaac, his son, who's now older. They go uh, on a three-day journey to a place called Mount Moriah. As they get to this mount, Abraham leaves his servants behind and goes with Isaac. They take the wood and all the materials for for the burnt offering with them. And Isaac asks, we have all the materials, but where is the actual animal to be sacrificed? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. So they climb up this mountain, and still there's no animal in sight. And so Abraham makes the the place for the burnt offering. He lays Isaac right here on the altar for, for the offering, takes out his knife, is about ready to sacrifice his son. When an angel of the Lord finally shouts out, Abraham, Abraham, don't touch the boy. You've been tested by God, and it has been found that you fear the Lord. Look over here. There's a ram caught in the thicket. Substitute the ram for your son. Sacrifice this ram. And the air is kind of let out of the room. Abraham is not actually going to have to sacrifice his son. So a little bit of the resolution comes. But despite that, I'm still left with a couple really troubling questions. Some major tension gaps in my thinking about God. How could this guy who's the father of our faith be willing to actually sacrifice his son? What kind of example is that? Well, we find out later on in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, that it says Abraham actually 
believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. He had that kind of faith. So that kind of settles that question. But then it just leaves this greater question and the harder question to answer as, how could a good and loving God ever command someone to go and sacrifice their son? Even if he wasn't going to let it happen, how could he ask such an awful thing? Well, I don't think the answer to this story can be found just within this story, but in the larger pages of Scripture and God's bigger story. Earlier, we watched a video that quoted Luke 24, where Jesus is now resurrected. He's walking along this road to a town called Emmaus, and these people are with him, and he shows them how in every page of the Bible, uh, he has fulfilled what has been said long ago, that Jesus completes what was said before. It would have been an amazing conversation to, get, to ask Jesus all the kind of questions about the Old Testament that still puzzle us. But here's what, how I, would, I believe Jesus would have answered this question regarding the sacrifice of Isaac. I think he would have said, wow, this story is about one father and a son. It's actually bigger than just this father and this son. We see God spared Isaac on this altar. He spared him. And we see how much Abraham loved this son. So, of course, we are grateful for God's grace that spared Isaac. But while Abraham loved Isaac as deeply as he did, God loved, God the Father loved his son, Jesus, infinitely more. And while God asked Abraham to, to, to sacrifice his son and he spared Abraham, his son, God would never ask anyone to do anything that he would not do himself or hasn't done. And we see while God spared Abraham's son, Romans 8.32 tells us this, that God did not spare his own son, Jesus. So how will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? God didn't spare his son. The ultimate seed and the lineage of Abraham is Jesus, is Jesus. And just like the ram was substituted for Isaac, so Jesus was substituted for us. Our sins deserve that punishment that would have involved death to be cut off from God forever. But because God loved us so much, we see how much God loves us because we know how much Abraham loved Isaac. God loves us that much more that he was willing to give his son for us. I don't believe this story can be understood apart from Jesus. I don't believe we can know God as a good and loving God apart from Jesus. Jesus is the resolution to this story. Last week we learned that Jesus was the Savior. This week we learned Jesus is the resolution. He's the resolution to these tension gaps in Abraham's life and in this story. And he's the resolution as well to the covenant. We said that, we asked the question earlier, that is the covenant conditional or unconditional? Is God holy and he's going to make sure he keeps every aspect of this covenant, even if that means we're going to be set apart from him or cut off from him? Or is God's covenant unconditional? Does God love us so much that despite what we do, he's going to just give us his promises anyway? Well, here's what I believe the answer is. Yes. Yes. Because, because of Christ. He fulfills this. Because Jesus perfectly kept every condition of the covenant that God has made with his people over the years, kept every commandment perfectly. Because he kept all of the conditions of the covenant God can now love us unconditionally. Jesus took our place. 
He lived the life we never could have lived. He died the death that we deserve to die. But with him now, the ultimate tension gap that all of us have to deal with in our lives and come to grips with is the tension gap that is created by our sin between us and God. And Jesus resolved that tension. So when we stand before God on the day that we die, God won't look at us as people, even like Abraham, who were deceivers, who were murderers, who were adulterers, who were awful people. No, he will see us the way he sees Jesus, perfectly keeping all of the law to the T. It's an amazing freedom that we find, that Jesus is the resolution. And not only is he the resolution of the covenant or of Abraham's story, but he's also the resolution when we find ourselves in these tension gaps that we don't know how to make sense of. Jesus frees us from having to avoid them. He frees us from having to obsess over them. And he allows us to embrace these tensions even though they might not go away. And the way that we can embrace these tensions and receive this great gift of Christ's presence in our lives, even in the midst of the toughest times, is through prayer. Prayer is the embrace of tension. This summer, as we've gone through probably the most difficult experience of our entire lives that has left so many tension gaps in our thinking, I end up writing this statement here in my journal. It says that prayer is the antidote to despair. Prayer is the antidote to despair. I always am a little cautious about things that rhyme, but I think this one's actually true. (laughs) Prayer is the antidote to despair. And why is that? Because in prayer, we get to receive all of the great riches that are found for us and awaiting for us in Christ. We don't ever think to turn to prayer when we're feeling terrible because we'd rather avoid it. We'd rather uh, distract ourselves or get obsessed over other things. But in fact, when we turn to prayer, we can receive the thing that we're looking for most. And that's God. And that's God. Look back at Romans 8, 32 with me. It says, God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God wants to give us all things even when he doesn't give us exactly what we want to help ease that tension gap. But the way that we receive all these things is through prayer. Because in prayer, we start to see how God has been stretching us and shaping us through the tough times, through adversity, through all the resistance that we face to become more and more like Christ. That's our ultimate goal in life, to be like Jesus, to give glory to God. But not only do we become more like Jesus, but we get to start to see Jesus for who he really is as the resolution of all things. We get to see the magnificence of what he did for us on the cross. We get to see his extravagant love displayed day after day, and it reminds us of the vision that God ultimately had for us and he's given us will one day be fulfilled when there will be no more pain or crying or suffering. No, God's goodness is going to eliminate evil once and for all and goodness will have the last word. And we remember that in prayer. We remember that that God who's going to do that, he's right there with me in my circumstance, in my tension gap. And as we start to see God like this for who he really is and not who we want him to be or make him out to be, We start to want God for himself. We start to seek God not just for the blessings that he can give us, but we can start to seek God for who he is in himself. And we can find that nothing God could give us beyond himself could be any better. God himself is the gift. This reminds us back in Genesis 12 when God said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you and you will be a blessing through all people. 
Well, this is the blessing that Abraham was supposed to carry on and ultimately did through Jesus. And that blessing is that people can have God himself, life with him. The greatest blessing of God is God. It is God. It's not what we get from God. It's that we get God himself. That's the greatest blessing of God. And when we are in the midst of these tension gaps and we embrace them by embracing God in prayer, we find ourselves embraced by the one who will never, ever let us go. And that's an amazing truth. And that's an amazing reality. So no matter what you are going through, don't avoid these tension gaps. Don't obsess over them either but embrace them because nothing else could ever come close to satisfying you like the satisfaction that comes by being embraced by Jesus, the ultimate resolution. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the amazing, amazing promises you give us even when things seem dark and bleak and we're tempted to fall into despair. God, thank you by your amazing love that you free us from that. God, we want to ask for your forgiveness for all the ways that we often try to avoid these tension gaps in our lives. We try and run from you, distract ourselves from you. But God, you're right there waiting for us in the very place we don't want to go. But give us the courage by your spirit to go there, to embrace this tension and be embraced by you, God. I want to pray for every person here who might find themselves in a tension gap that just seems never-ending, and it seems to only get worse and worse. I pray, God, that you would stretch them to be more and more like you, but more than that, God, help them to see that every great blessing in Christ is already theirs. Help them to sense your presence with them like never before, God. Give them the strength to trust you. Give them the hope to continue to look to you and not to one thing of this world. So Jesus, we just thank you for the cross. We thank you that you're the resolution that somehow all the issues and problems in this world ultimately will be resolved in and through you. And so Lord, may we rediscover you yet again today and always. And it's in your great name that everyone prayed together. Amen.